And just in case, once again, in case you're maybe new here this evening, maybe this is your first evening as part of our conference, it's my privilege to be able to welcome and introduce uh, Jeremy Simpkins. And Jeremy and Anne are based in Manchester in England, and they've been working with us here in Canada and in Fredericton since 2009, and they're part of the leadership team in uh, Christ Central Manchester. And also, Jeremy and Anne help uh, lead a team of our whole family of churches within Christ Central, family of churches within New Frontiers. And we're thrilled to be able to have Jeremy and Ann here, and uh, we're thrilled that Jeremy's able to speak tonight. So welcome, Jeremy, and thanks for serving us. Brilliant. Thank you. It's great to be here. Fantastic. We've really enjoyed the amazing sense of God's presence at this conference. Hasn't it been brilliant to experience God, the God who's with us, not some fading memory, but alive and well and in his church, pouring out his spirit and touching us and stirring us. I was so blessed by Rafaru's uh, prophetic word as he spoke about, it's great to experience these things of healing and life, encountering God in the church. But the whole point of God pouring out his spirit on us is not so that we might contain God's spirit. It's not so that that might be kept in these four walls. But actually, it's God's amazing intention. It's God's plan. It's God's purpose that we should actually be a demonstration of his love, of his goodness, of his mercy, of his kindness, of his grace in the world that we live in. And my concern today is that we go away from this conference that's just seeing these things personally blessing us. I'm secure in this. I'm blessed by this. And I'm, I'm concerned that we don't just end up just going away happy. Actually, we must go away empowered by the Holy Spirit. See, that's the thing that the Holy Spirit does. When I, I became a Christian, uh, my parents were very evangelical. They grew up under the ministry in London of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones and were very passionate evangelicals, uh, loved God. They always prayed with me. I can remember every time, bedtimes, mealtimes. It it was wonderful to just to know that evangelical upbringing. Of course, there was a day when I was eight years old that I personalized that, that I uh, accepted as my understanding was Jesus into my heart, into my life as a little eight-year-old understanding what that meant. It was radical. It was change. It was different. I understood what had happened to me. I understood that I was connected to Jesus. I knew that my eternity was now secure in him, but probably that's about all I knew. And uh, even growing up in the traditional church that I grew up in, they didn't really explain to me the rest of the gospel, the rest about Jesus. They didn't really explain to me the rest about the church. They certainly didn't explain to me about the Holy Spirit. And I can remember at 16 years old, walking into one of the first churches that was starting to relate to Terry in our hometown of Hastings. And I can remember thinking, oh my goodness. I think I'd probably put it stronger than that as a 16-year-old would. This is what I've been missing. This is real Christianity. There's something about these people that is so different. First of all, I couldn't quite work it out. Was it because they sang lively songs? Was it because they seemed to uh, preach from the Word of God? Very lengthy preachers from the Word of God. Uh, was it because they, well, I couldn't, were their community? What was it? What was it about these people? I soon understood just from a few weeks of being amongst them. What marked these people out more than anything else was the presence of God, that God was with them and they knew that and they seemed not just to have a personal, private, individual relationship with Jesus, but they seemed to be empowered by him in community together and they seemed, that seemed to reach out to 
others and friends and family and lifestyle. And I couldn't work out what it was. They explained it to me. It was the empowering, the coming upon, the filling with the Holy Spirit. And I can remember asking them to, uh, to pray with me. And I can remember the day when I, interestingly enough, I got baptized in water. At the same time, I was baptized in water. And the elders gathered around, slightly formally, I think, and laid hands on me. I can remember the power of God just flooding down upon me. I can remember pulsating with the love of God. I can remember thinking, I, I've never known power like this. I've never known freedom like this. I've never known worship like this. I was saying in my seminar, I can remember experimenting with worship. I can remember being in a, a charismatic renewal meeting as a non-charismatic renewed person. And I can remember being in this, it was pews, and I can remember everyone was so free in worship, their hands in the air, worshipping God. And I can remember thinking, I can do that. I'll have a go at that. Look how free I am. And I can remember thinking, I can't even lift my hands above the back of the pew. Once I was filled with the Spirit, I can remember just bursting out in spontaneous praise and worship and love of God. God totally changed my life. I can remember being very embarrassed about Jesus at school. I can remember my friend Kevin. Everyone has a friend called Kevin. And I can remember... (laughs) Everyone needs a Kevin, don't they? I can remember Kevin, my friend, his dad was so cool. His dad owned uh, holiday parks. He owned a racing car. He used to race cars. And it was just a, staying with Kevin's house was fabulous. We got to do stuff, go to theme, the sort of amusement park. We got to see the racing cars. It was just great staying with Kevin. And of course, I realized that actually not only had I been to Kevin's house, but of course now Kevin had to come back to my house. That was the deal, wasn't it? And I can remember pleading with my parents uh, in our traditional church, please don't let us go to church on Sunday morning. I don't want Kevin to know what I do on Sundays. I can remember saying, please, can't you let us off church? And they said, no, that's what we do. We're a family together. We go to church. I can remember Kevin and I just, so he was, I'm not sure who was more embarrassed, Kevin or me, when we went to church. But then I can remember, literally, I got filled with the Spirit in the autumn of 1979. And I can remember going back into sixth form college. So that's, uh, uh, yeah, doesn't matter what it was. I can remember getting back into sixth form college and telling all my friends about Jesus. And the difference was the baptism, the filling, the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Difference, it's so important that we understand that the Spirit of God is given to us, not so that we can feel happy, so that we can feel renewed, so that we can feel clean, so we can feel renewed in worship, so that we can uh, have a new love for God. All that is wonderful. I love that. But actually the purpose of the baptism of the Spirit, the purpose of the coming upon of the Holy Spirit is so that we might be free to witness. It's so that we might be able to be witnesses for Jesus. That was the original coming upon of the Spirit. Jesus said, wait, wait in Jerusalem till the Spirit comes on you. And when the Spirit comes on you in power, when he clothes you with power from on high, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Now, dear friends, I want to root this slightly unusually tonight. I was going to speak on something else. It's uh, interesting being at a conference with Terry. And uh, (laughs) I said to Joseph, what what would you like to speak on? I said, I think I'd like to speak on being in Christ uh, in terms of the grace of God. First night, in Christ, grace of God. 
I, th- I said to Joe, well, I think I'd like to speak about the Spirit and the presence of God. Second night, Spirit, presence of God. <laughs> so I said, well, I think, <laughs> no, we're not going to do healing, we're okay. Um, I want to speak about making all of our life count for God. I think the danger is with some of us, we still tend to think this is private. We still tend to think that this is something personal. We still tend to think that this is just for me or even for just our church. But what I believe God wants to speak to us today about is empowering you for life. Now, if you've got a Bible, this is a strange place to turn to, I think. But I felt God speak to me about it recently. Why don't you turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 1? Strange. I felt God has spoken to me just out of this passage recently. You see, once I got filled with the Holy Spirit, I can remember talking to my lecturers at college. I can remember talking to my biology lecturers and saying, surely God is great. I had this bigger understanding of God. I thought, surely God is big. Surely God is real. Surely he's in everything. Surely God made it all. And they said, oh, no, 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 no. That's just chance. It's just luck. It's just happened that way. It's just evolution. That's how it's. I can remember talking to my English and philosophy lecturers and saying, surely God is great. Surely God is good. Surely God is real. And he touches lives. Oh no, that's just a, that's a different era. That's a different understanding. That was come out of the Victoria. That was an old way of thinking. No, no, God, God's not, God's not alive anymore. God's dead. He's not real. He's not relevant at all. And we need to know as Christians, we need to be empowered by God's word. We need to know that actually the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Because I tell you the lie of the enemy. And as Christians, we've kind of reacted to things in the world, particularly over the last couple of hundred years. We kind of made this big separation between the secular and the sacred, the spiritual. See, this is all spiritual. Church is all spiritual. Small groups, all spiritual. My quiet time, my time with Jesus, it's all spiritual. But actually, God wants us to invade secular space. And for God, there is no separation. There is no divide because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And God's original intention, God's original purpose, God's original plan for man was to be his representative on planet earth and to rule and to reign and to bring in his kingdom authority into all of life. Let's just have a look at what was said. This is Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 and I'll just read down to the end of the chapter, chapter 1, this is the NIV, I apologise for any mistakes in it. It's probably time I changed my Bible anyway. It's falling to bits. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Boy, how Trinitarian. How wonderful. That is right from the start. And in our likeness, let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the livestock and over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man. In his own image, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature and everything that moves along the ground. 
And God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They'll be yours for food and to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath and life in it, I give every green plant for food. And so it was so. And God saw that all he had made and it was very good. There was evening, there was morning, there was the sixth day. And I believe God wants us to see our original purpose for creation. The original purpose, the original design that God had in mind when he created all things. His original plan is for us to bear his image. For us to be his representation on planet earth. You see, the pinnacle of his creation was mankind. It's the first time that God says it's very good. Up to then, it's just been good. And everything God does is good. But when he creates you and me, when he creates male and female in his image, he says very good. This is his design on planet Earth. And he says not only are we very good, but we're actually made in the image of God. We're actually made to represent him. Now, Moses writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is actually being very contextual. He's actually being very relevant to the society that he's living in and moves in and understand because the whole of the Bible is contextual. It's written and understood in its context and we must therefore understand it in its context and sometimes when we understand it in its context it gets fresh revelation and fresh life for us. So Moses is writing and he's using a particular phrase here in the image of God and apparently the pharaohs and the kings of Mesopotamia in the time that he was writing, would make images of themselves. You see, surprise, surprise, they didn't have television. They didn't have iPads, iPhones, tweeting or texting. So nobody really thought they knew what the Pharaoh looked like. You probably hadn't seen the king. You probably hadn't seen the Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh said, the Pharaohs proclaimed that they were in the image of God. They were the sons of God. They were the divine. They were the correct image of God. And so the pharaohs would make great statues of themselves and parade them round at various parts of the territory, various parts of Egypt and Mesopotamia. And they would say, this is the image of God. This is what God looks like. And Moses is very subversive, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, saying, no, actually we're all made in the image of God. Mankind, male and female, as originally created, are created in the image of God. And we were created to co-reign with God, to rule and to reign with him on planet earth. And we did. We don't know for how long. For some time, perhaps, Adam and Eve reigned. They ruled. They brought, actually, God's reign. They were God's co-representative. They ruled on his behalf. They named animals. They gardened. They planted. They saw seeds coming up. They spread the kingdom of God out. And this was God's plan that actually from Eden, which was like a garden temple, from Eden, actually eventually the whole earth would be full of his glory. As they spread out, as they brought the creativity of Eden, as they brought the garden out, the whole thing was supposed to be full of the glory of God. But of course, Adam and Eve were subjected 
to something they should never have been subjected to. It's interesting to know. Nobody really asked this question. How did the serpent, why did the serpent even come into the garden in the first place? Just interesting to note, they were told in Genesis 2, chapter 15, that they should work and care for the garden. Now, in our translation, that kind of gets a little bit unnoticed. However, the same words that Moses uses later under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Numbers are actually used about the priesthood to serve and to guard. That's what they were. They were priests. Adam and Eve were the first priests to God. They were to serve God and to guard the garden. And somehow, some lack of guarding happened. Somehow, some lack of authority happened. We don't know how, but somehow this snake gets in. And somehow they interplay with the snake. And of course, the snake says something to them. And this is what the snake says. Basically, it causes them to, tr- to lack of trust in God. It says to them, has God really said? Did he really say? And what he tempts them on is this. Do you know, you could rule this planet. You don't need God to rule. You could rule and reign. The crazy thing is, that's what they were doing. The crazy thing is, that's what they were called for. And they should have just said, don't be stupid, snake. Why are we talking to a snake anyway? (laughs) Don't be stupid, snake. We are rulers. We're reigning. In fact, because we rule, because we reign, get out of my garden. That's what they should have said. But they didn't. They interplayed with the state. They entertained this. That's what the devil does all the time. He'll say, to be really happy, you need to go with her. To be really at peace, you need to drink that, to sniff that, to inject that. To be really joyful, this is what... No, no, that's not where those things are found. Our joy, our happiness, our peace is found in God. We have that as a free gift. And the, the devil comes and he lies and he cheats and he steals. And of course, they gave in. To the snake, they gave in to the serpent. And of course they're banished from the garden. And man, although still living, is like a ruined castle. I don't know if you have those here in Canada. Um, I don't know if you have castles. A really old one might be like 100 years old. <laughs> In my hometown of Hastings, I grew up in Hastings, as uh, those of you who know Don Smith would say, Hastings is about 20 miles from the coast of France, and uh, Don would always say, on a bad day, you can see France. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, in Hastings, we had this magnificent, well, it's not that magnificent, but it's a castle. It's a ruined castle. It was built in 1066 by William the Conqueror, uh, Guillaume the Conqueror. Uh, something like that, for Gary's sake. And, uh, but it's a ruined. It, it, you look at it and you think something glorious used to live there. Something wonderful, something amazing, something royal, something incredible, something with majesty, something with authority, something with power must have been based in there, but now it's just a ruin. Now it's just a wreck. That's what humanity's like. When we look and we say Some, someone wonderful must have lived there, They must have been royal and have authority, but actually now we are, as humanity, ruined wrecks. But right at the very beginning, of course, there's this magnificent promise that God says. Actually, it's God's great plan of salvation. One day, he says, the seed of the woman, seed singular, 
the seed of the woman will come. And although he'll try, although the serpent will try and strike the heel, that's what we said on Sunday, he will stamp his head. I referred on Sunday to that amazing scene from the Passion of the Christ when the actor playing Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane with the moon and the shadows and the skies, he rises in the garden, he's praying. He says, oh, Father, take, if there's any way to take this away. He's the Son of God. He's struggling with the concept of what it's going to mean. It's real. He's really battling. It's not fake. It's not make-believe. It's a real temptation for Jesus. It's a real battle going on. And he battles in prayer with his father. If there's another way, father, is there another way? He says, no, no other way. He says, right, your will be done, not mine, yours. He wins that battle. He rises up, puts his shawl on. And in the scene, you see this slithering snake come under his garment. It's only a scene from a film. But how prophetic it is as Jesus rises up and stamps on the head of the snake. Just hours later, he was going to pay on a cross, as we were beautifully singing about today. Just hours later, he was going to stamp on the head of sin. He was going to pay our price. He was going to stand condemned for us, taking all the guilt and all the shame for us. He was going to come as our sacrifice. He was going to come and pay for the separation of man with God. And as he does that, as he cries out, it's finished. Not I'm finished, but it's finished. As he declares that, as he takes upon himself the sin of all the world, as it says, he who knew no sin became sin, actually became sin for us. The Son of God who'd only ever known purity with God, only ever known beautiful fellowship, suddenly alienated. Father, where are you? Taking our sin, paying for our rebellion in the garden, which is all of our fault. And at that moment, it says the temple veil, torn from top to bottom. And God's saying, I now no longer have a problem with man. My presence is accessible. You're forgiven. See, in Christ, dear friends, because of what he's done, because of his sacrifice for us, because of God's great plan, which was always his plan, we are now not just forgiven, although that is wonderful and glorious and amazing, We're not just clean and free from the power and authority of sin, although that is most wonderful and will occupy us for all eternity as we sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. But actually, we're restored to that which was lost. We're restored to the rule and the reign of God. Now, some of you get concerned about that. You think, well, it will be one day. One day we'll rule and reign with Christ. One day in some new heaven and new earth somewhere, somewhere out there, we'll rule and reign. Actually, that's all a bit strange because it won't be out there. The last great scene of the Bible is not us being snatched out of planet earth. It's actually the new heaven and the new earth, or the new heaven coming down and a new heaven and a new earth being brought together and us reigning with Christ forever. 
But this rain starts now. Now, we're going to apply a whole load of this in a moment, but you've got to understand this. Otherwise, you're trying to rule and reign out of your effort rather than out of what God's done. See, Terry referenced this for us on the first night. Romans 5, verse 17. For if by the trespass of one man, if by the sin of Adam, if by the sin, if, and Paul doesn't say, or if, possible, no, he's saying, of course, by the sin of one man, if by the sin of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace, as Terry was preaching about on Friday night, and the gift of righteousness, which we've been speaking about all this weekend, how much more will they what? Reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Jesus came speaking more about this reigning in life than just about anything else. In Jesus' language, it's the kingdom of God. It's the rule and reign of God expressed now. Now, one day, it will be fully expressed. One day, there'll be no crying, no more death, no more pain, no more tears, no more short legs, no more difficulties. There'll be none of that because all of it will be put right in the new heavens and the new earth. But right now, we get to demonstrate that rule and that reign in life. That's what we're called to do. We're not just called to have our little happy churches and our little cozy meetings and just congratulating one another in things. No, we're called to be a demonstration, a prophetic people who declare the rule and reign of Jesus in life. Why otherwise would Jesus have prayed, Father, let your kingdom come where? On earth, let your king. This is what he taught his disciples to pray. Let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Do you think the kingdom has come in heaven? Do you think the king is revealed in heaven? Do you think righteousness, peace, and justice? Do you think there's no sickness and suffering? Do you? Well, Jesus said, "Pray for that to invade this. Pray that the kingdom of heaven will invade the kingdom of earth." Pray for that. And if we're to pray for it, surely we're to expect it. If we're to pray for it, surely we're to step into it. If we're, Jesus told us to pray for it, surely that's what we're supposed to live for. Surely that's what we're supposed to be. Now, we haven't got time to look at this today, but amazingly, this is actually what happens. There was a separation between heaven and earth that happened in the garden. Originally, it was together. Heaven and earth together in the garden. Presence of God with man. Through sin, separation. Through Jesus, he was the joined up man. He came as God's new man. He came as the very temple of God. He came as the very dwelling of God. He came, as Terry referenced it, the very tabernacle of God. He came representing everything. He came as the joined up man, the man who joined up heaven and earth. John says he tabernacled amongst us. God pitched his tent on planet earth. He came that way. And now the amazing truth is this, because of the cross, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension of the Lord Jesus and because you are included in him this resurrection power is birthed in you you're born again filled with the Holy Spirit and the amazing thing is you become like living temples you become that's what Paul says he references in Corinthians you are now the temple of God now I know that's corporate I understand that 
But there's also individual references to that. Jesus said, if you are thirsty, if you're thirsty, come to me, drink. And he says this, from your, and he uses a technical term, coleos. We get the beautiful English word colon from it. It means the center of the center of the center. The rabbis had a kind of shorthand description of the temple. And they said it was the coleos of God. It means the center of the center of the center. They thought that Israel was the center of the world. It's not geographically, it is spiritually. In terms of the presence of God, where God dwelt. They thought that Jerusalem was the center of Israel. It's not geographically, but it was spiritually in terms of where God dwelt. And they thought that the temple was the very center of Jerusalem. It's not geographically, but it was where God dwelt. And they had this phrase for the temple, the center of the center of the center, where God dwelt. God was with us in the temple. God dwelt there. And Jesus says to those on the Feast of Tabernacles, he says, if you want the living water, you come to me and drink. And from your temple, I'm going to create you as a temple, a living temple. I'm going to create you as like this mobile tabernacle. I'm going to allow you to be full of the Spirit and actually you're going to be dispensing living water. You see, Jesus went around behaving just like the temple. But that's actually what got him killed. What actually got him killed is the arrogance to say that he was like the temple. You see, if you were sick or suffering, your only hope was in the temple. Your only hope of healing, show yourself the priest. They might pray. Your only hope of that, particularly those who are lame and blind, interestingly enough, that's referenced in the Old Testament, they weren't allowed anywhere near the temple. What does Jesus seem to hone him in on? Lame and blind. Always going for it, lame and blind. It's direct reference back to he's the temple. Direct reference back to saying, I'm the joined up man. Direct reference back to saying, I'm the one in whom the glory dwells. He goes around forgiving sin. He, the only place, the, this was heresy, this is what got him killed. The only place you could get sins forgiven was at the temple with a dove or a bull or a goat. or the, well, That's the only way you could do it. What audacity. This man says he can forgive sins. He says to the paralytic, the guy who comes to the roof, he says, knowing their hearts, son, sins are forgiven. What? Only God can forgive sins. He knows what he's doing. And they're angry. They're arrogant. And he says, well, so that you know, just so that you know that I have authority to say that, I'll do something else. He actually says, and the commentators are not clear on this, what's easier, for me to say your sins are forgiven or for me to say get up and walk? That's easier to say your sins are forgiven because nobody can see it. It's actually much harder to say, get up and walk, because then you'll know if I have authority or not, because he'll get up and walk. Actually, Jesus is twisting it around, because it's much harder to say your sins are forgiven than get up and walk. He says, well, so you know I can do that. I'll say, get up and walk. The man gets up and walks. Why? Because Jesus is the only place to get sins forgiven. He's the joined up man. He's the place where heaven and earth meet. And the amazing thing is about being in Christ is that we not only get forgiven of sins, we not only get justification, we not only get right with God, but we also get filled with his spirit. We become like mobile tabernacles. And dear friends, that means that when we go through life, we can actually offer healing the lame, the blind. 
We can pronounce sins forgiven, not in our name, but in the name of Jesus. We can act like the temple. That's what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be the temple when we come together. We're supposed to be living stones built together, built on a foundation of apostles and prophets, a rightly laid foundation of Christ. It says in Ephesians 2 that when we do that, the glory of God's going to come down and be with us. But it's not supposed to just stay on a Sunday. Like, wasn't it great to have glory when we were together? The whole idea of God filling us with glory, God filling us with the Spirit, God empowering us with these things, is that we go out and live it. We go out and be amongst our friends, our communities, our people. We go and be the very blessing of God. We do exactly what Rafaro says. We actually offer life and friendship with Jesus. Dear friends, that's what we're called to do. That's what the church is called to do. It's interesting. Jesus almost exactly mirrors the commission in Genesis when he gives the Great Commission. When he says, go into all nations. Effectively, he's saying, be fruitful and multiply. It's a a direct recreation of that. It's a direct fulfillment of that. It's a direct correlation of that. Some of the commentators pick that up when he says that. You see, Adam was called through a fruitful wife to fill all the earth with little Adams and Eves. Jesus, through a very fruitful wife, is called to fill all the earth with new creations, to redeem creation, to fill all the earth with people who are filled with the Spirit, people who are saved. And that's our great commission dear friends, to go and make disciples of all people. That's why we church plant. We don't just plant church plant to have more, to have a name on a list. It's not, oh, Vancouver, ticket. oh, that's a good one. Top three cities in the world. Also top three most expensive cities in the world. It's not just to have a name on a list. It's not just, we church plant because we believe that we are going to be in that place, the living temple, the place, the dwelling place of God. And in that, we're going to offer, yes, healing, the lame and the blind, and yes, salvation. And yes, we rejoice that Charlotte is now, even tonight, enjoying the presence of Jesus because we church plant. That's why we're doing it, dear friends. We're doing it to fill all the earth with the glory of the Lord. Now, we honour every church planting group. We don't think it's all us. We don't think we've got all the answers. We're, we're kind of Johnny-come-latelys to so, so some of this. We honour all those who've gone before us. We celebrate all of it together, but we want to play our part. Therefore, we say thank you for what you gave tonight. We'll use that to plant the next one and the next one and the next one. Interesting, Adam and Eve were gardeners. God loves gardening. I don't. I have a wife who loves gardening. And Anne will tell you, and it's very interesting to see, see, most people think the weeds came later. I'm not so sure about that because they actually had to tend and plant and there were seeds and there was gardening to do. Yeah, thorns and thistles came later. But actually, Adam and Eve were supposed to extend the garden I think throughout the whole earth, it's the implication. The garden temple was supposed to grow from Eden throughout the whole earth. And dear friends, that's what God's calling us to do. He's calling us not just to have gardens, although actually, I think when we do something beautiful, 
We mustn't have this sacred, secular divide that says something only is spiritual if I do this. Actually, beautiful architecture, beautiful gardens, beautiful cities. That's okay. It's not more than okay. It's actually a prophetic declaration that one day all the earth is going to be beautiful. All the earth is going to be redeemed. And as Christians, we've withdrawn from those sort of areas and thought that's kind of worldly. Beautiful music, beautiful architecture, beautiful city. Oh, that's all kind of world. No, it's not. Actually, we're called into all the earth to declare the glory of God. And that means all arts, all professions, all areas of life we're called to get into. But actually, we're called to pull up some weeds. And if we had time tonight, we could talk about what areas of life we could pull out weeds from. We're called to garden. We're called to till. We're called to bring order to disorder. We're called to bring creativity, creation to chaos. We're called to do that, dear friends. Now, the lie of the enemy is he'll say to you, you only do that in the church. You're only supposed to do that in your little gathering." Do you know, we're actually supposed to be in the world. See, Christians talk about the world as if it's a dirty place. The world. No, Jesus said, he said, keep them in the world. Because our temptation is to get out of it. Our temptation is to get into monastic, kind of get into separation, get into segregation. Where Our temptation is to retreat from the world. God actually has called us into the world. Now, he said, don't be of it. Don't have its attitudes. Don't get tainted by its ways of life. Don't let its rules and regulations, don't let its ways of, don't let its lusts and greeds and vices, don't let that get into your heart, but be in it. In fact, the point of us being in it is we're supposed to change it. We're supposed to be salt and light in it. That's the whole idea. And dear friends, I just want to stir you as we kind of bring some of this into a landing. And just say this, I just want to tell you a couple of stories deliberately. I want to say your life matters. Your life counts. Where you are is important. The sovereignty of God is as much involved in where he has placed you as in your salvation. I really believe that because I believe he's sovereign in all things. It's important to know the character personality he's given you. It's important to know the job, the place, the vocation, whether you're employed or not employed, where you live, where you shop. God's placed you there for a very good purpose. And don't start, you know, it's not about necessarily praying for other Christians to join you. That's great if they do, but he sent you there to be salt and light. Now I'm going to tell you a story about a young lady in one of our churches called Laura. Laura to me is a hero of the faith, a heroine of the faith. Laura is what we call in the UK an NQT, newly qualified teacher. And Laura gets, she's just qualified, she's just done her teaching education. And what that means in our system is she's been trained in it, but hasn't actually done it. And she gets her first job, and it's in a rough school, a difficult school, a problematic school, because always we give our newly qualified teachers not an easy job, but a hard job. And she gets a difficult class. She gets the worst class, because, you know, as you go up, you get the better classes. She gets the bottom, and she notices the attitude in the staff room, uh, classroom. She notices the attitude amongst the pupils, and she notices it's not only bad in the classroom, it's awful in the staff room. Guess what? Leadership matters. And she said it was personified in the staff room fridge, refrigerator. She said as she opened the staff room refrigerator, instead of a lovely beam of light that came out, she said almost like this dreadful hatred came out of the fridge. Not that it was demon-possessed, 
But that on every item, on all these little boxes, was those yellow stick-it notes. You know those things? Those, what do you call them here? We call them post-it notes. Post-it notes. Post Mine! Get your thieving hands off. Who stole my cake last week? I'm going to get you, you son of a so-and-so. And she was like, whoa, this is amazing. This is the staff room. It's supposed to be a, like a, a refuge from the school. And she, had, and she said, oh, God. She said, how do, I, how do I change? How do I change this school? You know, how can I preach the gospel to this school? And the Spirit of God whispers to her, go and buy the biggest carton of milk you can find. No, no, she says, no, no, sorry, God, must have misunderstood. Look, clear the mind. <laughs> how, what's the evangelistic strategy, Lord? How, do I, how, how am I going to preach the gospel? How am I going to get to the head? How am I going to influence the governors? And the, how am I going to, no, he says, go, no, go and get the biggest carton of milk you can find. So she does the next day. She buys the biggest carton of milk she can find. She sticks it in the fridge. And God says to her, now put my post-it note on it and say, free milk, help yourself. And she says, is that it? Is that it? She says, yes. Fletch the fridge. Next person opens it. Oh, who's put that there? That's interesting. Apparently, the buzz around the classroom for the whole week, because she did this day after day for a week, was, that's amazing. Someone would actually do that. Someone would put free milk in the fridge and say, help yourself. That's a, is that what they call one of those random acts of kindness? That, and they started, to talk, they started to talk about it. They start, and she said, guess what? In that week, the atmosphere in the staff room started to change. And then she said, what was even more amazing? After that, over the next couple of weeks, the attitude in the classroom started to change. Guess what? Leadership matters. She then said, what was amazing, over the next term, semester, the results in the school started to change. All because one little girl, newly qualified teacher, had the courage to be salt and light or a milk lady. (laughs) I was watching, uh, we have a a magazine television program called The One Show. Uh, I get all my cultural uh, information from the one show. It's like a, a night, a sort of sofa. I'm sure you have the same thing here, a sofa, and they chat away on the sofa, and it's always current affairs and news thing, and, and they always have an interesting item, and it's usually about a squirrel that uh, climbs along a... Uh, I don't know. But anyway, <laughs> that would interest Terry. Um, <laughs> and this one day, they, they introduced this... Shit, this beautiful Afro-Caribbean lady... And I thought, that's, she's a strange lady, sitting on the sofa, beaming, all happy on the sofa. And uh, she started to tell a story. I actually wrote it down. And this is her story. Her name is Mimi Asher. She's from Brixton in South London. It's a really tough housing estate, a supported housing, council housing estate. Mimi described her estate like this. It's a place. No, I went over to the accent. But she had this great accent. She said, it's a place that not even the devil himself would walk through because young people living there are terrorizing the estate. Kind of got my attention. I thought, oh, the devil, that's interesting. What's all that about? And then she said this. One gang member was pictured on the front of the Sun newspaper. Now, the Sun newspaper is not an edifying newspaper was pictured on the front of the Sun newspaper brandishing a submachine gun from her estate, her gang. 
When she found out that Michael, her son, had joined this gang, she decided that she would do something to stop him wrecking his life. So she began to take on the gang. You think, what? Mimi Asher? She began to take on the gang. It's her words. She began to take on the gang, not with violence, but with love. She started inviting gang members into her home. Sounds just like Kelly, doesn't it? She started inviting gang members. I'm not suggesting you have gangs here. She started inviting gang members into her home and cared for them, offering to feed them and wash their clothes. She set up a range of activities to give young people positive things to do. She set up a football team. She set up a football team. Cookery lessons, dance classes, dance classes. Yeah, helped them to prepare healthy meals, gave them access to safe computers and information and training courses. And from there, a remarkable story emerged of the gang eventually being decommissioned as a result of the love that she constantly demonstrated. Through her witness over three years, right? Not three minutes, not three weeks, three years... Through her witness over three years, she and her neighbours, because she recruited neighbours to help, helped 60, 60 young people out of that gang and have seen their lives transformed. The young man pictured with the submachine gun is now a respected mentor helping other young people get out of gangs. The ex-leader of the gang, Carl Loco. What a great name for a leader, for a gang leader. You kind of knew you were born for badness, don't you? (laughs) Carl Loco. That's not a word of knowledge. Is there anyone here called Carl? No. Carl Loco is now a successful musician and acts also as a mentor helping young people to leave gangs. The best news of all is this. Mimi's son, Michael, through this process, became a Christian and now preaches regularly at Mimi's local church. And the one show, you know, this is like BBC One, seven o'clock at night, finished with Michael preaching the gospel, with Mimi smiling in the ch- <laughs> So happy that her son... Yeah, this is Mimi Asher. Yeah, we tend to tell stories of great pioneers of the faith. We tend to tell stories of great people. And I could, we haven't got time tonight, but I could tell you great stories of some of the reformers. I was going to do that. I was going to tell you the story of Wilberforce, who changed the slavery uh, laws in the UK 200 years ago. They affected the whole globe, actually. I, I could actually tell you about one of his followers, someone who actually got saved in the Wesleyan revival, a man that you've probably, or some of the ladies here particularly, would have heard of, a man called Wedge. Anyone heard of Wedgwood? What's Wedgwood famous for? China, pottery, right? You think, how is Wedgwood going to be remembered? Well, he's remembered for his pots. He's also remembered for this. He became a Christian under the preaching of Wesley and Whitfield. And actually, he first of all financed Wilberforce's campaign. All right, if there's some Wedgwoods here, if your God's blessed you in business, if God's enabled you to do something, he gave money and financing. But you know what? That wasn't the best thing Wedgwood did. The best thing Wedgwood did is Wilberforce said to him, use your creativity for God. He said, well, I make plates. I'm a potter. How can I use it? I could make, you know, God plates. (laughs) Dove, rainbow. (laughs) They might sell well. No, he said, use your creativity for God. What you've got to understand, it sounds a bit tacky what I'm about to say now, but you've got to understand the culture 
brooches, women's brooches with a new fashion accessory. Now we think it's someone grand, grandma wears, but then it was a new, exciting fashion accessory. And Wedgwood decided, he, he felt, he, God speak to him, he felt actually I should, I'm going to design a brooch. And he designed this beautiful brooch with his colours, his famous trademark, eggshell blue and the filigree white. And on it was a slave breaking free from freedom with the words described, I am not a slave, I'm your brother. And actually, it was tiny, but actually it became the must-have fashion accessory of all the ladies in all the land. All of them, whether they supported slave trade or not, were wearing this. And some commentators reckon that it was that that swayed public opinion as much as Wilberforce and all his public, all his arguing in Parliament. Use what you have. Use whatever God's given you. Another person who was saved in the Wesleyan revival, he heard Wesley preach on this. Get, earn as much as you can, save as much as you can, and give as much as you can. I love that. What a great motto for life. Earn as much as you can. It's okay to do that. Save as much as you can. It's okay to save. It's okay to do that. But also give as much as you can. And he talked to the guys. And again, they said, use your creativity for God. And he was a businessman. He actually had one talent. He had the the, the thing that he could do the best. And it will probably offend you when I tell you what he was good at. Was this. Brewing beer. Now. (laughs) His name, his name was Sir Arthur Guinness, by the way. Um, and what he did, in his day, you've got to understand, in his day, drunkenness was a massive problem because the water supply was polluted. And because the water supply was polluted, people couldn't drink water like we can do. So they had to drink water that had been purified. And one of the ways of purifying water was alcohol. And actually, gin was the most popular drink. You could get drunk for a penny and dead drunk for tuppence. That was the, that was the, the motto. And actually, the land was full of drunks. And actually, he felt God speak to him about a health drink. Guinness was designed as a health drink by a Christian. It's amazing. <laughs> How's that for liberty? (laughs) How's that for changing your conscience? (laughs) But actually, as he became more and more successful, eventually being knighted, he was one of the first to create schools and Sunday schools, to create hospitals and hospices. He was one of the first to give free dental care and medical treatment to his workers. He brought the kingdom of God into life through his gift. Now, You may be artistic. You may be a business person. You may be a school teacher fresh out. You may be Mimi Asher, just living in your estate, not knowing how to penetrate your community. In all these instances, it was the Spirit of God, not bright ideas, the Spirit of God that led these people to have breakthroughs. I want to encourage you. I want to ask you, where has God placed you? Where has he put you? Where has he empowered you by the Spirit to work, to live, to volunteer, to shop, to be? Where is it that you go? Ask God for keys to unlock that. I love what has happened with Kelly and your street work here. I just love what you guys are doing. I think it's absolutely fabulous. I just want to commend it to you as a, a shining jewel. Now that's Kelly. Where, is he, where are you, Kelly? Are you even here tonight, my love? You're wonderful, all right? But there are other Kellys here, you know? The danger is we look at Kelly. Now, if you hear Kelly's story, it's quite a tough story. She's been through an awful lot in terms of doing the street work. 
started with just her and her dad giving out a couple of sandwiches. So you hear the story, it's phenomenal. And now he's feeding masses of people. What is it? God gave Kelly that. What is it God giving you? God actually, I remember the story. God said to her, she said, I don't know how to feed the homeless. God said, yes, you do. Go and make a sandwich and give it out. That's all she had to do. Now she's feeding hundreds. What is it? I I think God's going to actually use us to equip the poor and the marginalized and the dispossessed and the downtrodden. I felt God's really spoken to me about this. I feel actually it's one of the ways that corporately we can let our light shine. Because you could interpret what I'm saying as this is individualistic. You could interpret what I'm saying as just, this is just my little life now. And oh yeah, I'm filled with the Spirit. And I've got my little thing to do in my little world. Actually, this is about a community shining for Jesus. This is about a corporate community. And I might not have the bright idea, but I might better finance or resource someone else. I might better come and support their team. I might better do it because this is about a community together. You see, Jesus says this, Matthew 5, 14 to 16, you are the light of the world. He's already said, I'm the light of the world. But he now turns it on his disciples and says, you're the light. This same, this same authority is in you. This same life is in you. The same light. It's not a little dim torch. It's the same light of Christ that's in you. The same life is in you. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Why would you do that? Why would you light the light and put a bowl on it? Put a, you know, why would you do that? No, yet let, he says, no, they put it on a stand. It gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You see, our good deeds are not what gets us into heaven. are not what gets us into relationship with God. We've heard that powerfully this week. We don't do good deeds to impress God. God's already impressed with us in Jesus. We're in Christ. He can't be any more impressed with you than he is right now because he's impressed with Jesus and you're in Jesus. You can't be any more righteous than you are now because Jesus is righteous and you're in him. You can't be any more peace now. You might better feel a bit more of it, but you can't be at any more peace because you're in the Prince of Peace. See, that's we're in Christ. It's wonderful. It's glorious. But his purpose is that we might let that light shine. In the same way, let your light shine before others. They may see your good deeds and glorify your Father. Actually, it's by our good deeds. It's by our good works. It's by what we do in the community. It's by how we live our lives that God is going to impact this community. Let me finish by saying this came across this verse very recently. It's one of those verses you must have read hundreds of times and yet just recently read it. It's in Peter, 1 Peter 2, and it's 12 and 15. Live such good lives amongst the pagans that though they accuse you of wrongdoing, do they accuse us of wrongdoing? Yes. Have you heard what they say about sexuality? Have you heard what they say about finance? Have you heard what they say about marriage? Have you heard what they say about family? Have you heard it's scandalous? Have you heard it? It's wrong that you discipline. It's wrong that you live like that. What do you mean you commit yourself to one person for life? What do you mean that you married to a man and a woman? To, what do you mean? That's scandalous. It's surely it's, it's restrictive. It's not free. It's not freedom. It's not. They accuse us of wrongdoing, although they will accuse us of doing wrong. They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. 
For it's God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. It's ignorant and foolish. Do you know the best way to win an ignorant and foolish person is not to tell them how stupid and idiotic they are. That's what Christians do. Ban this, stop that, idiots. Now, I'm not saying there isn't a place for representation of truth in the right place in parliaments, in councils. There really is, and we need to empower young people to have that as a passion and a vision. But I'm saying the way to win people in Fredericton is not with placards, it's with acts of love. It's not with letters of complaint, it's by living letters of love that connect with people. Dear friends, God is calling us as a community to live out the gospel. For it to be real in us, for the grace of God to be real in us, but for that to be so real that we don't just keep it on a Sunday and keep it in the home, but we live it out as mobile tabernacles day by day. Let's end this. I have so much more we want to say, but let's end this. I wonder if the band could come back up. Let's end this by honouring those amongst us who feel stirred that they, in their community, God has called them to make an impact. God has called them to make a difference. That God has called them to preach the gospel, to live the gospel to demonstrate the gospel. God has called you to lay hands on the sick. He's called you to feed the poor. He's called you to influence. It might be a classroom. It might be a boardroom. It might be a neighborhood. It might be a supermarket. Wherever God has called you to work and live, he's called you to be an influential person. He's called you to bring in the rule and the reign and the kingdom of God into life. Dear friends, if that's you, if you feel particularly God has spoken to you tonight, We want to end this meeting by empowering you in the spirit. Because what you need is not great advice from me. What you need is great authority, which he's already given you, and great power in the spirit, which is on offer right now from Jesus, who is on high. He pours out his spirit. He empowers us to live for him. If that's you, why don't you stand right now? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, I thank you for an army of people. Lord, we're ordinary people. Mimi was an ordinary woman. We're very ordinary. She was very unimpressive on that sofa. Lord, I thank you for an army of ordinary people. People who feel that they know who they are. That they know that in Christ they are called to rule and reign. They know that in Christ, they're called to bring change, to pull up weeds, to bring order and authority, to bring creativity, to lift the poor from their depth. And Lord, it's wonderful to go on church planting. We love it, Lord. We want to fund it, finance it, send them. But Lord, we also want to honour those who are called to Fredericton, called to these towns and cities around us. We want to ask you, Lord, for an empowering now in the Spirit. I would like the ministry team just to start to uh, just move around and just start to pray for people. And we're going to just worship in, as we end. And God's just going to empower us as a community. He's just going to empower us as a body. He's just going to send us out. There's authority in God to do that.